This is an Ecodharma audio podcast of a talk from the Buddhafield Festival 2016. It's called Unleashing a Post-Capitalist Imagination. It's delivered by me, Kuhipati, from the Ecodharma Collective. For more about our work, check out www.ecodharma.com. Afternoon. Um, a couple of things to start out. So this is quite a long, dense-ish talk. So it's not, you know, it's not a tweet. It's not a kind of like your, you know, YouTube soundbite or something. So you know, it's, it might be demanding a point. Um, and also, it's not introductory Buddhism. Um, I'm assuming that people have a basic grasp of, of what Buddhism is. That you know, words like Dharma don't need to kind of explain it. I'm also assuming that people have a kind of, you know, a reasonable sense of current affairs. And if you don't have either of those things, there might be bits where you kind of, you know, you you, you don't quite follow, you know. But that that's my fault, you know. That's my fault for making those assumptions that aren't correct. It's not yours. So, so you'll forgive me for that if that does happen. And uh, yeah, I'll dive into dive into it. So, um, in 1969, there was an organisation called the Club of Rome, founded to develop uh, an analysis of the systemic nature of the global problems that we face. Um, the first publication they produced was called The Predicament of Mankind Prospectus. It had a very cu- catchy subtitle, which was um, Quest for Structured Responses to Growing Worldwide Complexities and Uncertainties. So the authors, they recognised that um, if we view the problems that we face at a global level as separate, discrete um, issues that are capable of being addressed in a piecemeal way, um, viewing them in that way is itself part of the problem. They argued that the problems we face are actually interlinked and they're mutually entrenching. And to articulate that understanding, they termed, um, they coined the phrase, the global problematic, spelled T-I-Q-U-E. So, sadly... Uh, many of us still aren't very good systems thinkers. Uh, sadly, we too often don't link up. Uh, we don't see the relationships between issues like housing or education or racism or climate change or the kind of general biases within the media. Uh, and also, we often don't recognise that, um, in fact, the ecological, the social, the political, the economic problems that we're facing are also... Uh, spiritual problems that actually what's at stake is really a kind of an ethos the kind of morality the uh, the vision that we hold for mankind humankind uh, and our relationship to the ecosystems we depend on so arguably the dominant um, political ideology of the last 40 years has been neoliberalism so championed by Thatcher and Reagan Reagan in the in the 1970s um, you know, setting out to minimise the state, to dismantle the welfare state as part of that, to remove legal protection for workers, and to replace that with a deregulated free market. That worldview of neoliberalism really compounds the global problematic, um, especially in the way that it presents a, it holds a view or a vision of what humankind are. Uh, it sees the basic drivers of our behaviour as self-interest. And um, 
particularly this, the, the efforts to maximise that self-interest through consumption and accumulation. So it assumes that those kind of behaviours are universally human. And then it sets out to establish a social order based on that view, a rewarding competition and consumption. And in doing that, it creates a social system that shapes us in the likeness of that view. And we really do begin to become homo economicus. So addressing the global problematic, clearly isn't just a technical issue. Um, it's not about rejuggling social arrangements or simply better economic modelling. It's not merely a political issue. There's a spiritual um, problem here that requires spiritual solutions and, and an effort to challenge that view of humanity. A few months ago, Paul Mason, who was the um, economics editor for Newsnight, BBC, then he was working for Channel 4, recently become an independent journalist because of the constraints of working within the mainstream media, he wrote an article exploring uh, challenges to the austerity politics uh, in Europe and also the non-democratic nature of a lot of the institutions of the European Union. And he said that that struggle, he said, this really is a battle for the soul of Europe. In fact, it's more than that. You know, to the extent that what we're doing is we're contesting uh, human nature, you know, our very soul, the nature of our soul. And to the extent that that um, struggle impacts on the ecosystems that we depend upon, really we're talking about a battle for the soul of the earth. Contemporary social struggles and spiritual struggles, they're bound together. Um, to my mind, authentic spiritual practice needs to come to terms. It needs to be able to face the social and political dimensions of our lives, to not turn away from them. It's my conviction that our individual flourishing, our individual liberation, is inextricably bound up with the flourishing and the liberation of others. And that really it's through our struggle to liberate ourselves and others together that we really come alive, that we can truly flourish. So that's what I'm going to explore in this talk, and I'm going to explore that in terms of the very specific socio-historical context that we live in. Uh, and kind of, you know, ask, well, what can the, the Buddha Dharma offer to this? So the subtitle of the talk, as we just heard, is... Um, Unleashing the post-capitalist imagination. So before exploring the nature of the radical imagination, um, I first of all want to explore how has it become leashed, how has it become bound. So the place to start is to acknowledge um, the failure of the traditional political left and the workers' movements of the 20th century. It's become commonplace to recognise that the neoliberal project has in fact been a class war. Um, through policy, legislation, through the media, at times with direct physical force, um, organised opposition to neoliberalism was effectively crushed in the closing decades of the last century. And so much so that Perry Anderson wrote in the New Left Review in January 2000, he said, the only starting point for a radical left today is a lucid recognition of historical defeat. So neoliberalism, or to use the kind of popular term, we talk about the 1%, right, um, 
have succeeded in a project that Wolfgang Streeck says has depoliticized the economy while at the same time de-democratizing politics. It's a world, as Mark Fisher wrote in 2009, where the lack of alternatives to capitalism is no longer even an issue. Capitalism seamlessly occupies the horizon of the thinkable. So when we combine the failure of the traditional left, the de-democratization of politics, the allures of consumerism and the restricted discourses of the mass media, we begin to get a sense of what has contributed to this leashing, this binding of the radical imagination. Antonio Gramsci uh, used the term hegemony uh, to describe this kind of situation. So hegemony refers to the cultural power of the dominant group, uh, the capacity of the dominant group in society to rid us even of the possibility of imagining a viable alternative. <coughs> hegemony is a state of affairs where, uh, and I've often quoted Frederick Jameson recent years around this, it's a state of affairs where, as Jameson says, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> hegemony controls social forces without the need to express itself through direct domination. In fact, domination, direct domination, where dominant powers need to use force and a threat of force, um, are a kind of deflation of hegemony, a reduction of hegemonic power. In a state of hegemony, hegemony we dominate ourselves through the internalization of a restricted discourse. We inhabit a kind of cognitive enclosure. So it even determines who we think we are. <coughs> And all of this leads to um, what we could call a reflexive impotence, a situation where we're very aware of the difficulties and the problems that surround us, and yet um, we have no sense of potency or pathways to effect change to address those issues. So responding to this state of affairs during the late 20th century and the early part of the 21st century, a lot of alternative politics began to take the form that Anthony Negri and Michael Hart call uh, exodus. Uh, it involves a shift of attention away from electoral politics and, it, and away from a direct engagement with political institutions, the institutions of the state. It turns our attention towards sort of micro-level political action outside of the state. Um, so the approach was to withdraw from direct uh, engagement and instead build a kind of pluralistic multitude of alternatives. So alongside those strategies of, of exodus, in the, um, the end of the 20th century, we also saw the rise of the new social movements and, and lots of forms of what we could call identity politics. Um, there were the, the anti-nuclear and the peace movements, um, anti-racism, environmentalism, these kind of mass movements sort of grew up in the, in the space that was left as the traditional um, left, the, the traditional labour movements kind of fell away. And all of them, of course, in, um, contributed very important um, shifts in culture, um, the, you know, the context that the state operates within. But they showed very little capacity to determine real structural changes. So they were able to articulate areas of resistance um, 
achieve, achieve important victories, but mostly fail to constitute a systemic threat, uh, tending to focus on diverging identities and divergent areas of protest, they also often miss the systemic nature of the global problematic. Uh, and they fail to build op an opposition that's truly transversal. Their lack of what we could call a political relay and um, their institutional disengagement meant that these modes of protest um, and the alternative cultural spaces they, they created actually enabled the neoliberal project to consolidate power. With a really strategic adeptness, um, the neoliberal elite transformed national and international institutions. Nation states, as we know, surrendered their capacity to determine economic policy to unaccountable transnational entities. And elections within those nation states became reduced to contests between political parties offering no alternatives. So this is a state of affairs that Colin Crouch calls post-democracy. An obvious expression of that was what happened in Greece uh, this time last year with the imposition of the sort of, the, the sort of austerity packages there. Right? So that strategy of exodus, um, while described as a kind of withdrawal, the establishment of some kind of alternative, was actually as much a form of banishment, a form of exile. Uh, it was a period during which the 99% have been exiled from political engagement. And during that time, the 1% has been very, very busy. The consolidation of uh, the neoliberal project defeated the old left. But now neoliberalism itself is in crisis and new opportunities are beginning to open up. We're currently living at a historical juncture. Uh, a moment that offers enormous opportunity uh, in which a new kind of politics is actually now becoming possible. And with that, the possibility to champion new conceptions of humanity. So there are lots of ways of theorising social change and two, two of the ways that stand out are the cultural theory of social change and uh, the points of disruption theory. So a lot of what's happened in alternative politics of the last 50 years has contributed to important cultural shifts, created new contexts for action. But as I said, whilst they're important, uh, unless these shifts directly address the balance of power in society, they're consistently co-opted. Unless they're able to contest the balance of power, they can't affect systemic change. And they need to be connected to some kind of political relay that can achieve institutional transformation. And now we stand at a point where that kind of transformation is becoming possible. And this is where the point of the disruption theory comes in. The current crisis of neoliberal economics is historically, a really historically significant point of disruption. Uh, it's a moment that we should take very, very seriously and very seriously engage with. Gramsci, who I mentioned earlier, in 1930, he said, um, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot yet be born. Which is a very good description, I think, of the moment that we're living in. The decisive moment, as many of us are probably aware, is 2008. The beginning, the opening of this point of disruption. 
Um, you know, the fall of the Lehman Brothers in September of that year is kind of em- emblematic, uh, a point where the whole house of cards of speculative um, financial capitalism seemed to be imploding. The height of the crisis, I remember people talking about, it's the end of capitalism. You know, people exclaimed, they're nationalising the banks. You know? It didn't take long for people to recognise that wasn't quite what was going on. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, of course, the 1% uh, had succeeded in turning that catastrophic event very much to their advantage. Uh, by September 2008, the Bush administration had already announced a $700 billion bailout package, which commentators say eventually reached uh, $2 trillion. Uh, an epic case of privatising profits and socialising the risk, as we say. And, of course, the public debts incurred in that process... Um, they paved the way for the politics of austerity. They prepared the ground and the justification for the austerity politics we see today. And that's been used in an attempt to complete the project of kind of tearing up the Keynesian post-war social pact and reducing uh, the, the provision of the welfare state. But even so, actually the reverberations of 2000, they haven't settled, right? And it's still true, as Joseph Stiglitz, um, Nobel, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, says that the fall of Wall Street in 2008 was for market fundamentalism, was for neoliberalism, what the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 was for communism. Despite the efforts of the neoliberal elites to turn the crisis to their advantage, there's much to suggest that this is still turning out to be the end game for neoliberalism. As the Bank of International Settlements wrote very recently, they warned the global economy seems unable to return to sustainable and balanced growth. Even the proponents of neoliberalism are becoming forced to acknowledge that it doesn't work. So I was in Barcelona recently um, at a a meeting organised by an organisation called Barcelona Encremu, who are a municipalist group in Barcelona. And one of the speakers was Yanis Varoufakis, who was the Greek finance minister last year during the negotiations um, with the Troika. Uh, And now he's a spokesperson for an organisation called Democracy in Europe Movement, DM25, who are quite an interesting group, an interesting movement. So he told us about conversations he had with leading members of the the Troika, uh, which is the the triumvirate who who were... um, responsible for, for negotiating and imposing the austerity measures on Greece. So in those conversations, high-ranking officials of, of the Troika said uh, that the Greek programme um, clearly wouldn't work. But they insisted that Varoufakis would have to accept the programme um, to maintain his own credibility as a politician. According to Yanis, the leaders of the Troika, they fully acknowledged that austerity in Greece wouldn't and couldn't work. But they were politically obliged um, to force those disastrous policies upon the Greeks. So as Yanis said, it's, uh, it's like the Pope not believing in God. So of course, what's said in private off-the-record conversations is kind of contestable. Right? And uh, they didn't tell him this in public. Um, but we don't have to take Yanis's word for it. Um, earlier uh, this year... Um, the IMF, who are, is probably the most infamous um, global instrument in neoliberalism, they published an essay 
uh, by three of their top economists. And it was called Neoliberalism, Oversold? Question mark. So the lead, re- the lead authors, they were saying that you know, something like this wouldn't have even been published by the International Monetary Fund five years ago. Uh, at that time, they wouldn't have even conceded the existence of a political ide- ideology called neoliberalism, in fact. Right? But in this paper, they concede that the results of neoliberalism have been terrible, uh, that it hasn't delivered economic growth, it's made a few people a lot richer, a lot better off, that it actually causes epic crashes that leave behind social wreckage that cost billions to clear up, and its attempts to curb the size of the state results in costs that can be much larger than the benefits. So here again, there's a massive gap between what the IMF thinks and what the IMF is still doing. As Yanis Varoufakis said, it really is like the Pope not believing in God. So despite bank bailouts, um, spending cuts, wage freezes, uh, pumping billions into financial markets, growth remains anemic. As um, Aditya Chakraborty, an economics journalist, says, we are witnessing the death of neoliberalism the long death of an ideology. So, the stored engine of neoliberal growth, um, an increasing sense of distributive injustice, bankrupted political leadership, and the fierce urgency of the ecological now are the cracks out of which a renewed radical imagination is pushing up in Europe. This point of disruption uh, is opening up a space for truly truly alternative political forms. Fresh forms of social organising and social movement building are beginning to open up. And it marks a moment for us to really, truly contest who and what we are. Politically, it marks a need for a shift from exodus to engagement. There's a Catalan political science uh, called Juan uh, Subirats, and he identifies three aspects and three phases of social movements. Uh, Resistencia, dissidencia, and incidencia, which are resistance, dissidence, and impact. So resistance is the aspect where protest and campaigning seek to prevent further damage being done to the social fabric, to to the ecological systems around us. Dissidence is where members of those social movements, they establish alternative ways of living, uh, subcultures that set themselves up outside of the mainstream of political discourse. So together, resistance and dissidence, they describe much of what social and cultural movements um, of exodus or exile have been doing during the last few decades. Impact, incidencia, however, is where these movements combine with some kind of political relay so they can have direct impact on political institutions. So over the last um, five years, in Spain, there's been a very interesting um, example of this kind of shift taking place. So on the 15th of May in 2011, a few people began to gather in the Plaza del Sol in Madrid. And gradually, more and more people joined them. And within weeks, the indignats had taken over most of the town squares in the cities across Spain. 
um, occupying them in the thousands. The Plaza de Sol in Madrid, Plaza de Catalunya in Barcelona were two of the really high-profile examples of that. And it was a very broad-based movement, um, largely one of, of protest. There was a whole generation of people contesting their future. The 2008 crisis and the austerity uh, politics that followed um, was robbing them of the kind of future that they had been promised. A higher standards of living, meaningful employment, adequate health care, access to education, they were all disappearing with no sense that they would return in their lifetimes. Youth employment stood between 50 and 60 percent. And it was a really inspiring moment. Right? Um, it was really dynamic, creative, and people coming together to create truly public spaces where they could discuss and debate and reimagine their future. It was a spontaneous kind of response growing out of this breaking up of the neoliberal order. It was a response to that, the impact of the right, but also made possible partly because of the impact the right had already had on the left in Spain. So there's a young young Spanish politician, Pablo Iglesias, you've probably come across him in the newspapers and on TV or whatever. Uh, he wrote, he says, um, he, he wrote earlier this year that it's, it's hard to imagine the emergence of such movements like the Indignats or the 15th of May movement in a, lit- in a political space um, with strongly articulated left and labour organisations. He says, only the barren wastelands that the neoliberal right had created in Spain by destroying all the social spaces associated with the left could such a movement have traction. So initially, from another perspective, um, to begin with, it all looked like much of the same, in fact. And name what Sidorak calls resistance and dissidence, you know, um, the kind of usual suspects uh, making some noise and then sort of going home, right? Unable to put together anything that resembled a coherent uh, social, social program. You know, being a broad and popular movement, it was unable to articulate specific demands. Um, People knew very much what they were against, uh, but as, as is so often the case in these kind of horizontalist movements, uh, they couldn't articulate a programme that could really offer solutions. So indeed, people did go home. Um, but I mean, you know, occupying city centres is hardly a long-term strategy. And at that point, there was nothing strategic about it. But what happened next actually led to a very, has led to an important, a decisive moment of impact or incidentia in Subarat's terms. So although after the initial protests, of months of protests, um, it all seemed like it had dissipated, the energy had kind of faded away as it often does. In fact, the process had been very instrumental in politicising a whole generation of people who hadn't come together in these ways before. From those mobilisations, people went back to their neighbourhoods and they began organising. Um, they built organisations that were trying to directly tackle specific issues like cuts in education, uh, healthcare, um, and to challenge evictions um, as a result of foreclosures by the banks. So many, many people in Spain sort of you know, facing eviction in that way. 
Taleb began to challenge laws and policies, and they won some really important concessions from the state and really um, changed the lives of lots of very ordinary, everyday lives of a lot of people. Those were movements that were known as the mareas or the waves or the tides. And those organisations themselves provided a training ground uh, for a new generation of activists who went on to contest municipal municipal and national elections um, that has now succeeded in breaking the two-party system that's been entrenched in Spanish politics since the uh, post-Franco transition. So Podemos, seemingly out of nowhere, um, took 8% of the national vote in European elections in May 2014. And running up to the national elections just a few weeks ago, they were polling as the second highest uh, party. They eventually came in third with 21% of the vote. That's an enormous, you know, out of nothing, right, from 2013 to 2014 to now. It's enormous impact. At the municipal election, things have been even more dramatic in some ways. Uh, last year, um, municipal uh, groups like Barcelona and Camus won control of the cities of Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, A Coruña, Santiago de, uh, de, de Compostela, um, amongst others, Cadiz. Um, you know, probably a bunch of you are familiar with Ada Calau. Right? So Ada Calau, if not, she was um, uh, a, an activist working to resist the kind of evictions I was just mentioning, the foreclosure on, on, on mortgages by the banks. A real grassroots organiser, put herself completely on the front line, physically stopping the police from evicting people from their homes. Right? An incredible woman. And now she's the mayor of Barcelona. Right? She's the mayor of Barcelona. That's something to really celebrate. That's an enormous, enormous shift. Right? Entering institutions, people of that kind of quality, people with those sort of values. You know? um, the Spanish establishment is in shock. Right? There's um, Martino Noriega, who's another activist, who's the mayor in um, Santiago de Compostela. He said in the Vanguardia newspaper last year, when I talk to the old parties of the establishment, it's clear that they can see that the ground is moving, but they have no idea what is going on. The Indignats, uh, the 15th of May movement and similar movements, they are very much in the phase of what Sugarettes calls uh, resistance and dissidence. Um, but now what we're seeing in Spain is the shift towards incidentia, the shift towards impact through developing organisations that can challenge and affect structural change. Something is changing, but it's kind of still hard to see quite what it is, you know, because it's so new. It's so new, and when things are so new, it's hard to hard quite to understand, and we can't quite put them into the boxes of the old discourse. And that's important that they're escaping from that kind of cognitive enclosure that hegemony functions with. You know, this is a moment, like as Gramsci said, where the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot yet be born. And now, really, it's up to us to be the midwives of that new. So importantly, of course, we need to remember that disruption can go in lots of directions, but for better and worse. And the rise of the far right uh, in Europe is an important warning, also um, symptomatic of this point of disruption. The xenophobic popularism of UKIP and the Brexiteers um, they're all symptomatic as well. You know, the, 
the rise of the National Front in, in France, the AFD in Germany, the Freedom Party in Austria, you know, the list goes on and on. As hegemony begins to, to rupture, a classic strategy is division. And we need to take this really seriously. As the anti-fascist movement has been warning for years, underneath the dysfunctional surface of liberal democracy runs the present possibility of fascism. It's no longer um, possible. Uh, we should no, not, no longer allow anti-fascism to be a minority concern. You know, as we, you know, here you saw with the, the killing of Joe Cox, hopefully that kind of rammed that home. Uh, or the, the rising incidents in, you know, reported incidents in everyday uh, expressions of racism. It's crucial to remember so much more what, what unites us rather than what divides us. And we should be really clear that neoliberal elites will use what they can to divide us at this moment in time. So, you know, we could analyse that in terms of the Brexit process we've just seen. You know, the understandable discontent, uh, the anger that's resulted from neoliberal betrayal of people, of ordinary people, the people left behind in the globalisation project, that discontent's been directed into xenophobia, fear of other, and into search for security through a kind of closing down. But how that discontent is directed is up to us to contest. Hopefully that Brexit process kind of highlights the sense, the importance of engagement. You know, it's needed to realise the promise in this moment of disruption, but also to oppose the dangers that it threatens. So those two things go hand in hand. Responding to this point of disruption, we need organisations capable of the real politics of the institutions. And at the same time, we have to still continue building broader social movements um, that ensure strong participation, that can determine the cultural context that institutional politics happens within. And neither alone is sufficient. As social movements without a political re relay are easily co-opted and they're marginalised. Um, but there's too much stacked against us for political parties, for example, alone to make the changes. You know, winning elections isn't winning power. Uh, Alex Tsipras, uh, who warned before the elections in Greece in 2012, he said if they won, uh, that ranged against them would be all the financial powers, most European chancelleries, the Greek oligarchs, much of the mass media, and a section of the state bureaucracy. Um, electoral politics won't make the difference alone, as he knew before that was, you know, it was psychologically waterboarded during the negotiations last year. You know, the difficulties really kick in when you've won. So it's time, I would say, for us to move beyond exodus politics of resistance and dissidence to engagement and impact on institutions. It's a moment that calls for us to break out of our subcultures and our individualistic lives and our identity politics and to begin to form transversal, pluralistic movements affecting systemic change. And that work to do that is a space within which the post-capitalist imagination can really begin to thrive. 
But the key, key question remains, can we make a moment in which to reimagine ourselves? Because participation in that kind of work is difficult, right? Um, in addition to the external challenges that, that face us, we carry internal ones too. You know, because of lies living under the hegemony of neoliberalism, we have been changed. In so many ways, we suffer from a kind of internalised oppression. So understandably, you know, many of us have become increasingly cynical of politics. Um, maybe we've turned towards strategies of economic individualism, you know, looking for some kind of security there. Maybe we've turned towards the laws of consumerism, you know, looking for distraction, shallow fulfilment. Or maybe we've retreated into our, our subcultures, hanging with our tribes, um, feeling different, cleverer, a bit more special than the deluded masses out there. And perhaps we turn towards escapist forms of spiritual practice, looking for some kind of you know, personal peace amidst it all. And maybe we've lost faith. Um, maybe we've ingested the diminished views of who we are. Uh, what it is to be human, uh, what it is that we can expect in this life, um, allowing our imagination to become leashed. And then, if we overcome those things and we have gotten involved, we then discover how difficult it is to work with other people. Um, more often than not, we don't actually have the skills or experience to really collaborate with others. So we can be disheartened by the sectarianism um, we can feel crushed by internal group conflicts that, they, that seem irresolvable. And we witness the playing out of psychological wounding in the power struggles uh, between us. We get lost in the details of, sort of short-termist uh, preoccupations. And not only do we find ourselves um, failing to cooperate well, but we actually fear cooperation. Um, having internalised the distrust of others and the distrust of ourselves, where old bonds have kind of been worn away. But it needn't be like that. And we know that through committed spiritual practice and collective spaces of collaboration and community, we and those around us can change in radical ways. We know that the specific practices, methodologies of the Dharma support meaningful transformation. Um, through the methodologies of ethics and meditation and insight, we can develop the inner resources and the qualities, the quality of relationships that we need to engage effectively and transformationally. So we're going to shift now to begin to look at what can Buddhism, what can the Dharma offer all of this? So in my view, um, for Buddhism to be relevant, we need a renewed and enriched sense of what Buddhism is and what it can become. It needs to be one that refuses to succumb to a hegemonically reduced vision of humanity or society. And it needs to be one that avoids the debilitating separation between the spiritual and the political that kicks off the divisive dualism of self and other, 
you know, this is the kind of thing we're trying to support in our work at the Ecodharma Centre, which is a very ambitious project. Okay. Something I like that comes close to that ambition is the work of um, Robert Unger, who's a Brazilian uh, politician and philosopher. And in, 19, in 2014, he wrote a book called The Religion of the Future. So in that book, he asks two questions. He asks, how can we organise a society that gives us a better chance to be fully alive? And how can we reinvent religion so that it liberates us instead of consoling us? It's quite a long book, but eventually he concludes... (laughs) Our religion should begin in the acknowledgement of our mortality and groundlessness, in the acknowledgement of these terrifying facts rather than in their denial, as religion traditionally has. It should arouse us to change society, culture and ourselves so that we become, all of us, not just the happy few, bigger as well as more equal. It should, therefore, as well, make us more willing to unprotect ourselves for the sake of bigness and love. It should convince us to exchange serenity for searching. Then, as long as we live, we shall have a greater life and draw further away from the idols, but closer to one another and be deathless, temporarily. I really like Unger's ambition, and I'm really drawn to this framing idea of a a religion of the future, which integrates social engagement with practices addressing the key existential challenges that face us. He argues that um, the new religion should pursue uh, escapism or resignation, and that our struggle in the world provides the transformational context in which we can most fully realise our potential. And he says we shouldn't engage socio-politically out of a sense of duty or obligation, but because we recognise that when we engage with others, based on deep values and vision, we create a space in which we and those around us can truly flourish. When we commit to engage with others to address the enormous ecological, social, political challenges that we face, we reclaim our collective agency and create this crucial context for the transformation of ourselves and others. Committed collaboration brings forth the creativity and the care that lies within us. So when we empower that kind of commitment um, with the practices and the insights of the Dharma, the results are deeply transformative. What I've witnessed when we do that is that we can develop the emotional resilience that we need to sustain our long-term action. That we can develop a bright and responsive quality of awareness that enables us to keep on learning from our efforts and to avoid narrow-mindedness or the sort of dead ends of ideology. We can deepen our capacity for empathy and for compassion so that we can really face 
the pain and the immensity of the challenges that we're turning towards. We can unlock insights so we don't just reproduce the problems that we're trying to address. And we can cultivate the patience that we need to turn the difficulties of working with others into creative collaborations. And we can find deep wellsprings of energy and courage. So that's my experience. But interestingly, Unger, he dismisses Buddhism as a source of the future religion. Um, he identifies Buddhism historically with overcoming the idea of overcoming the world. In his view, it reduces the world to deluded illusion. And it offers um, escape from the world uh, as the true salvation and peace. So I think that's a mistaken reading, a, a limited, you know, from a limited reading of Buddhism. I think that's mistaken. But I also think it's a completely understandable reading of Buddhism. Um, given that so much of the Buddhist tradition, historically and contemporary, uh, still makes the same mistake. So the American writer, um, Loyal Rue, in a book called Everybody's Story, he says, to the extent that the axial age traditions have stressed cosmological dualism and individual salvation, we may say that they have encouraged an attitude of indifference towards the integrity of natural and social systems. So amongst the actual axial age religions, we find Judaism, Christianity, Vedanta, Buddhism as well. And he's saying that to the extent that they operate within a framework, a religious framework that places a truer, more real, more sacred reality above, beyond, or behind a fallen and illusory world, salvation is seen to lie in escaping um, to somewhere else, heaven or nirvana. And this cosmological view, this dualism, undermines our struggle in the world. Both cosmological dualism and uh, the pursuit of personal salvation conduce, they lead towards a kind of withdrawal. Uh, they lead to a lack of care for the ecological and the social context that we depend on. So these pitfalls of cosmological dualism um, and individual salvation uh, are and have been a real problem for Buddhism. In, historically, we see it in the early depiction of the Buddhist goal as nirvana and in the Harahan ideal. And we see it again in contemporary forms of Buddhism where they emphasise the kind of psychological resolution of our personal suffering or that put an excessive emphasis on emptiness and non-self. The influence of neoliberalism, uh, the alienating social field that it has generated, it's reframed how many people approach Dharma practice. Um, so it's become an individual affair, focused on our own state of mind. And as, as Bhikkhu Bodhi um, says of these psychologised forms of Buddhism and, and the popularisation of mindfulness, he says, if you absent a sharp social critique, Buddhist practices could easily be used to justify and stabilise the status quo becoming a reinforcement of consumer capitalism. Similarly, excessive emphasis on emptiness 
or a no-self plays into psychological tendencies towards dissociation, where the profound teachings of non-attachment actually get in the way of people forming healthy connections of care and compassion with each other. Now, these approaches seem ironically to become attached to non-attachment. And we see this in some forms of neo-advaita uh, satsang-type teachings that are very popular at the moment, and also in some insight meditation teaching that doesn't um, emphasise the importance of ethical commitment and of community, spiritual community. And these are all paths of evasion uh, rather than engagement. They're approaches that alienated consciousness uh, finds highly attractive. And they lead to a kind of pseudo-spiritual dissociation. For authentic spiritual um, development, we need engagement. Uh, We need connection. As Sandrachida has said, an individualistic approach or motivation for the spiritual life is not the spiritual life at all. These stunted versions of the Dharma... They lead us into traps. But more than that, they strengthen the damaging tendencies in the world around us. So if Buddhism is to contribute meaningfully to engagement in the world, we need to rid it of both cosmological dualism and the false laws of personal salvation. Historically, this is what the Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism was about, right? Uh, the Mahayana philosophized the non-duality of samsara and nirvana, so it avoided cosmological dualism. And it emphasized the centrality of compassion, uh, placing altruistic motivation right at the heart of Dharma practice, uh, avoiding individualistic preoccupation. And the Mahayana addresses uh, this problem by surpassing the ideal of personal liberation with what's known as the Bodhisattva ideal. The Bodhisattva um, commits to the liberation of all beings. Rather than seeking escape from this world into the peace of nirvana, the Bodhisattvas ground their practice in the aspiration to support the flourishing of all sentient beings. And it's a really beautiful ideal uh, that integrates compassionate solidarity uh, for all beings with the wisdom that recognises that we're not ultimately separate from them. Traditionally, the path of the Bodhisattva, um, it begins with the vow to attain enlightenment for the sake of all living beings and to defer, to put off, entering nirvana until all beings are liberated. This still supports a mistaken conception of nirvana, obviously. Um, You know, the commitment implied is really powerful, but... This way of talking about it, putting off entering nirvana, it still suggests that there is this some other place where our salvation will ultimately be and that we're supporting others to reach. So there's still this cosmological dualism. Fortunately, though, this is just kind of figurative narrative. You know, In fact, the, the Mahayana um, goes much further than that. Philosophically, it goes much further than that. As it says in the Buddha Bhumi Sutra, uh, when liberation is achieved... There is no difference between samsara and nirvana. 
they are regarded to be of one taste. But even more than that, more radically than that, the Mahayana reframes the goal of practice, uh, the final goal of practice, not as nirvana at all, but as what is known as apatishita nirvana, which can be translated as not dwelling in nirvana, or non-abiding nirvana. So this is a vision of liberation in which the Bodhisattva doesn't turn back from either nirvana or samsara. It's a vision of liberation amidst our struggle in the world. With this idea, we find that the Mahayana doesn't accept either escapism, you know, the seeking of salvation elsewhere, or the complacent acceptance that we are simply doomed to suffer endlessly in this world. And seen like this, in fact, it matches up very well with Unger's uh, religion of the future. Liberation is not found in escaping the world, but by transforming fundamentally the way that we engage. So David Loy is a Buddhist scholar and teacher who we have coming to stay with us in Ekodharma this summer. Uh, we're running a community of inquiry. Um, and he expresses something this in, in, a, in a book he wrote called uh, Awareness Bound and Unbound. So in that he suggests that delusion, ignorance, samsara... Uh, is awareness trapped. And that liberation, enlightenment, nirvana, is awareness unstuck because freed from grasping. And then he points to the teachings of uh, Zen master Hakuin, who says that the difference between Buddhas and the rest of us is like that between water and ice. Without water, there is no ice. And without Buddhas, there are no sentient beings. And then David Loy goes on to ask, so does that mean that we are frozen Buddhas? So unfreezing awareness, um, liberating its unboundness, and unboundedness, is what Buddhist practice is really about. Um, practices which support us to bring a non-grasping attention to uh, our experience are what thaw us out. So methodologically, we do find that in, um, in practices that help, that help us to deconstruct our limiting views, um, deconstruct narrow attachment to um, the small ego identity, deconstruct conceptual closure, uh, deconstruct our desperate attempts to hang on to that which is insubstantial and impermanent. But that deconstruction, those posts of deconstruction aren't the only thing the Dharma offers. And if we mistakenly think that those explorations of emptiness or no self are the whole of the Buddhist teaching, then we miss so much of what it's really about. There's a Japanese scholar called uh, Gajin Nagao, um, and he, he, dis he discusses Mahayana Buddhism as um, something which articulates movement in two directions. He calls, he calls these movements uh, the direction of ascent and the direction of descent. Um, and in his reading, uh, the, two, the two great strands of the Mahayana, which are the Madhyamaka and the Yogacara, uh, they articulate these two, these two directionalities. Although the Madhyamaka has often been contrasted with the, the Yogacara um, in contemporary scholarship, um, 
Nagao suggests that that dichotomy it only it only reflects a later, less sophisticated understanding. That uh, the early Mahayana thinkers themselves saw the yoga the Yogacara and Madhyamaka as complementary of each other. So he associates the ascent directionality with Madhyamaka, uh, with that sort of rigorous um, deconstruction of all categories and all concepts. Uh, their uncompromising methods for revealing the empty nature of all phenomena. And then he associates the descent directionality with the Yogacara, who try to articulate how the Buddha qualities of wisdom and compassion manifest in the world. Placing too much emphasis on the deconstructed ascending dimension misses those important teachings the descending creative dimension and it's also a mistake Nagao says to think that Buddhism is about first ascending and then descending right? first ascending to wisdom and then descending with compassion rather Nagao says that um, it's about um, enabling ourselves to recognise these two movements unfolding simultaneously in our lives So the purpose of practices of non-attachment, of non-grasping, they're not to lead to dissociation, but to free up creative vitality in the service of life. And the practices of deconstruction, they're not intended to negate the world, but to realise and release the creative potential at its heart. So as Dilgo Kientze says, when we recognise the empty nature the energy to benefit others dawns, effortless and uncontrived. So thawing out bound awareness leaves awareness unbound, bright, engaged, uh, and importantly, creatively responsive. And that's what Dharma practice is for. Uh, although periods of retreat and pauses in our action for deep reflection, deeper meditation, there are important components of Dharma practice. Withdrawal or negation of the world are dead ends. At the same time, commit, commitment to deep contemplative practice, integrated with committed engagement, is a really, a really potent combination. Unbound awareness, this sort of non-grasping, responsive awareness, um, is a very powerful thing to bring to our social struggles. It can enable us to avoid sectarianism or excluding identities. Um, it takes us beyond frozen identities of like the old left and the right. It refuses that kind of ideological closure. And it cuts through feelings of despondency, you know, when we turn towards the immensity of the tasks that face us, even as it acknowledges that there will be failures and compromises. It knows that our understanding is always partial and always provisional, that we need to keep learning as we go and find the creativity in that. And it implies a revisioning of our spiritual and political projects. So instead of deferring our salvation or those around us into some future social utopia, 
or a somewhere else form of redemption, it encourages us to, to recognise it right here, right in the heart of our action. Liberation lies in the heart of our responsive and caring engagement in this moment with this world. So that implies an approach to politics that um, takes seriously the combined project of forging new social relationships and new consciousness. It implies an approach to spiritual practice that breaks with the cosmological dualism and the narrow goal of personal liberation. And the spiritual goal becomes the realisation of responsive and unbound awareness, empowered, engaged and evolving. And all of this actually implies a new kind of politics. It suggests forms of political organising that bring forth what we could call a responsive social field. A responsive social field that both reflects the responsiveness of unbound awareness and supports its development. So I think we can already see um, experiments in that kind of new politics in the municipalist councils that I mentioned in Spain and in the movements that they grew out of. Uh, We can see it in the assembly-based processes that encourage open discussion, uh, exploration, participatory forms of decision-making, ones, however, that that don't fall into the fetishisation of horizontality or or consensus. Uh, We see it in the emergence of the development of new technologies in municipal councils in Spain um, that really empower much more participatory policy development, for example. Uh, We see it in the enhanced capacity for social learning that comes out of much more diversification of channels of information sharing. And we see it, importantly, in efforts to build a truly transversal movements, and movements that deeply value what we have in common without seeking to diminish our differences. Movements that are profoundly pluralistic and yet built on a radical solidarity. So in this, there's this radical reimagining of ourselves and how our awareness can become unbound and liberated. Uh, A radical reimagining of politics beyond the ideological closures of the past and a radical reimagining of spiritual practice that finds liberation amidst our struggle in the world. And it's not imagination as fantasy. This is more about the creative power of the radical imagination. It's about the interplay of action and cognition that bring forth worlds, uh, that give rise to our experience and enables the creative formation of new societies and new selves. So I'd say today we face a very specific and crucial task um, of grasping this op- the opportunity that lies in this point of disruption. It asks us to bring our deepest resources to meet the discontent, the suffering, the anger, uh, the wounding that has resulted from neoliberalism and to redirect it towards responsive engagement towards positive efforts to create a society in which we can all flourish. And that involves, I think, recognising that, as I said before, our liberation and the liberation of others are bound together. 
and that it's through our efforts to liberate ourselves and others together that we truly come alive. So that's, you know, very much what the Ikadama project is about. You know, that's what our engaged Buddhist training program is about, our work developing, you know, nature connection, ecological consciousness. Um, you know, next year we're beginning, we're launching a whole new platform of social movement training, kind of integrating these dimensions. And we're going to call it the ULEX project. Uh, and it's kind of specifically aimed at building capacity in social movements at pan-European level. So these projects in Ikodama, I think they're, they're a kind of, they're a call. Uh, they're a call to explore these new possibilities together, uh, to struggle together in a deepening solidarity, um, to come, become more fully alive together, uh, to unbind our awareness together, and together to unleash our social and spiritual imagination. Thank you.